You're listening to the First Corinthians When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I think we can acknowledge this morning that there is tremendous pressure on the church of Jesus Christ to bow to our culture. We live in a strange kind of world today. And the culture in which we live in has some crazy ideas. They want to redefine for us the idea of what marriage is. They want to tell us how to rear our children. They want to rearrange our thoughts about the roles of men and women. They, they want to tell us what is intolerant. So anytime you say something like Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, that it, it's exclusive, they bristle at that and tell us that should never be said. How arrogant to say such a thing. How arrogant to talk that you might know that you have eternal life. How arrogant to say that if you repent and believe you can know Christ as Savior. And you can't be saved. And I understand it may sound arrogant, but that's exactly what Jesus has said. And so there's tremendous pressure on us today to bow to our culture. We're we're impacted by our culture incessantly. And I hope you also know that the church will succumb to to our culture if we allow culture to dictate to the church our theology and our practice. When the church takes from culture what we should believe and what we should do, it's just a matter of time before the church becomes slave to culture, and then we are controlled by every whim and philosophy that they send our way. When I was a small child, uh, growing up in Cleveland, downtown area, there was a, a church on the corner, and back then anyways, way back then, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, The churches were downtown, and you would walk to church. And I remember our family would periodically go to this Methodist church, and we would sit, and we would hear the message. And I have to tell you something. That church today doesn't resemble the church. They've been swept away by culture. And you wouldn't recognize them today as a Bible-believing church. And this morning, the only way that the church can guarantee that it's not swept away by culture is not allowing culture to dictate what we believe and what we practice, but allowing the Bible to dictate what we believe and what we practice. And and if you're curious this morning, maybe you're new here, you've been coming, and you're, you're not really sure about the direction of this church, let me help you this morning. This church will follow the Word of God with with what it says about faith and practice. We will take our marching orders from the Word of God, not from culture. Culture is very slippery. Culture is always changing. Culture is often wrong. But we will look to the Word of God and what it says on how the church ought to preach, ought to teach, and how they ought to live. And that's why when you come to a service here, 
And I've been gone on and off for the last several weeks, all right? But I know, I know that when the Word of God is opened, nine times out of ten, you will have expository preaching. That we open up the Word of God, and we look at the text, and we seek to expound in a comprehensive way what the text means. And we do that so that as a church, and as a body of believers, we can know the whole counsel of God. It's a wonderful thing. Um, when the church practices teaching and preaching like this, not only do we move our way through the Bible, but we have the privilege of seeing some of the great redemptive stories come our way and to rejoice over them. At the same time, we're challenged to slosh our way through some other texts that we would just as soon ignore. It's a wonderful way to go through the Bible. Not only that, if you're here for any length of time and you listen to that type of preaching, after a while you will learn how to read your Bible, how to study your Bible, and how to teach your Bible. When the text is open, you might not get everything there is to get, but you will get the big pictures because they're all there. You don't have to make anything up. It's a great way to do it. And I'll tell you what else it does. It saves us from turning this pulpit into a whipping post. I don't know if you've ever been to church before. I have. I've been on the receiving end of this. Where uh, who's ever speaking, there was trouble that week, or they have an issue with you, or they have an agenda, and so they use the next 30, 40 minutes to call out your name, not specifically, but you could put your name in the blank. And it becomes an opportunity then for the pastor or for the teacher um, to use the pulpit for his own agenda. It's a terrible thing, right? We don't have to work all week to hear from our congregation, give me a list of what your spouse did this week, I need a message. Right? Tell me about your children. Tell me about your parents in the car over here this morning. Right? I need something to say. We don't have to do that. And the wonderful thing about that is this. When you're sitting in church and the message hits you in the head, you know that's the word of God and the spirit of God, and you weren't just singled out by the pastor. God is talking to you. It's a beautiful thing. I know we don't feel that way sometimes, but it's a beautiful thing. It's more organic. And so we come this morning understanding that if the church is going to be the true church of Jesus Christ, there will be times when we come into conflict with our culture. And so now we come to 1 Corinthians 14. Look with me, if you would, at verse 34 and 35. We'll be there in just a moment. But let me just let me get you up to speed because it's been now a month since I've talked about this passage. We had some getaways in there and some other things happening and... Easter, and so now we're back here. But in 1 Corinthians 14, this is not one of those high Christological um, portions of Scripture we just glory in that never puts us to sleep. This is one that we, that we work our way through because it gives us order in the church. Order in the church. And so Paul is talking to the Corinthian believers, and he says, listen, you guys have real problems here. You are abusing spiritual gifts. And he highlights two, the gift of prophecy, which is a proclamation of truth, basically, and the gift of tongues, which is the ability to speak a foreign language that you never studied in order for those who know that language to understand the word of God. That's what it is. And you can check it out from Acts chapter 2 and the rest of the book of Acts. 
That's the truth. And so what they were doing is they were using this gift of tongues, abusing it to set themselves up. And Paul says, wait a minute, let me give you some instruction here. The most important gift is the gift to speak clearly to people. He said, I'd rather speak five words that you understand than 10,000 in a foreign language that you have no idea. And so in essence, Paul says, if someone is speaking for 40 minutes or an hour, and it's just a language you don't understand, Paul says, they need to shut up. I think that's right in the text. Right? Just shut up. Don't talk. It's, it's meaningless. And so he deals with that. And then we find our way to verse number 34 and 35. We touch on this uh, a month ago now. And let me just say this. Well, I'll, I'll say this in a minute. 34 and 35. Let's just read it first. It's worth reading. Let your women keep silent in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Welcome to Maple City this morning. <laughs> right? And already, I know that your blood pressure has spiked, and, you're, and thank you for not rushing the pulpit or leaving at this point. Okay, And I pray that you don't. I want to talk about this text again because, for several reasons, because it's been a while since I've been in the pulpit to talk about these things, and, and the last time we did, someone said, boy, that topic generated provocative conversation. And I'm always for provocative conversation. And it was good. And, and after that, a, a woman wrote me, and a, a woman I love and respect, and she said, there's something about verses 34 and 35 that just stick in my crawl. That sounds painful. Right? Because there's something about it that's just, yeah. Um, and I don't want anything to be stuck in your crawl this morning. Okay? I want you to be healthy and happy and good. So I want to talk about this issue again. And I want to present it in a way that I think the Bible would have us to understand it this morning. And I have to be honest with you. I am so thankful that we're in a church, we can be honest about what we think, we can be honest about where we come from, our, our past experiences, our presuppositions. We have seen verses like this abused. Abused. And it's a terrible thing. And so I want to help us walk through this this morning. And my, my hope is to get to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. That's my hope. Um, but I've been disappointed lots of times. Okay, so we're going to try this this morning. I want to look at this text again because it is a text that people have lots of problems with and it's a text that is relevant for us today. Basically, what Paul is saying is this, and you'll understand this maybe better now when I say it in this way. Should women be pastors or elders? That's the question here. And this portion of Scripture tells us clearly why it is that we at Maple City do not have women elders or pastors and why we won't. Okay, so hang on. A month ago we talked about this, and, and I would encourage you, if this is new for you today, to go back to our website, go back to the back here, get a copy of last month's message on this topic, because it, it gives you, I, I think, a fuller view of what we're talking about and may help you understand. But let me give you this morning just four things to remember, especially about this text, that I think will help us with order in the church and, and coming to grips with what's being said here, Okay. And they all begin with the letter C. It's going to make it real easy for you. Here's the first thing that you have to remember. Letter C, 
Number one, context. Context. Context is king. And what I mean by that is, whenever you look at the Word of God, every text, every portion of Scripture, it has a context. It is surrounded by other Scriptures. And when you pull one Scripture out or two Scriptures out, even in a good way, you can lose the heart of the meaning of the passage. And so, context is king. When you take verse 34 and 35 and you just read them without any idea of what's going on, it is easy then to say, Paul, you're misogynistic. Paul, you hate women. Paul, you are a chauvinist. And that's the charge. But let me remind you of the context. The context of this entire chapter is order in the church. It is not about the value and worth and intelligence, and ability of women. It's not. It's just not. He is simply talking about the order within the church of Jesus Christ. And he gives clear instruction here. And if you work your way out from this verse, and the chapter, and the rest of the book of Corinthians, you will clearly see that women had an active role in the assembly of believers. It's all there. And if you continue to work your way out, and I won't take the time this morning because we did it a month ago, but you will always see that the Word of God, true biblical Christianity, always elevates womanhood. Always. Ministry of Christ, surrounded by women. At the cross, everybody leaves, the men. But John sticks around, and the women. And the greatest event in all of human history The resurrection of Jesus Christ, which changed everything. It's the reason we're here this morning. The first witness of that was a woman. It's pretty powerful. And so context is important. Number two, the letter is C for Christ. You cannot take Christ and his work and his ministry out of the equation here. Because what this is is a topic about submission. And so, if we don't understand Christ and who he is and what he has done and what he has said, we can become very confused here. There's nobody in this room, I don't think, maybe there is, who, when I say that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, one God, three persons, when he humbled himself, when he submitted to the will of the Father, when he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, no orthodox Christian would say in that moment Christ became inferior. Jehovah Witnesses would say that. But they're a cult. A a Christian would never say, boy, Christ just, I guess he's not as divine as God is because he submitted. That's not true. We know it's not true. He is the God-man. All God, all man, Jesus Christ. He is in no way inferior, and yet the Son submits to the Father. And and by the way, this idea of submission, the Bible talks quite a bit about it, because it's not just submission for the home, it's the church, it's in government, it's employer, employee, it's children to their parents, and it's submitting one to another. And so you can't just take Christ out of this conversation because he's not asking you or asking me to do anything that he was not willing to do. 
So you, you can't do that. Nor can you take him out of the, the conversation um, when it comes to Scripture. Some of you folks, you will look at a verse like this, and, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, that's Paul. I am a red-letter edition believer. You know what that means, red-letter edition? Who knows what that means when I say a red-letter? What does that mean, Joe? Only the words of Jesus. And so you say, ah, I don't care what Paul says. I follow the words of Jesus. Only the words of Jesus. I'm a red-letter edition. a matter of fact, I'm a Sermon on the Mount kind of person. You know, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. It's just full of Jesus' words. Okay. Two ideas on that. Just I'm going I'm to sidestep that for a minute and just say, you folks who are just red-letter edition people and your Sermon on the Mount people, you better read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Because in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. See, there's a problem. Some of you folks, you like Jesus. You do. You like him. Because you see him on TV, and he's always sweet and kind and throwing flowers and skipping. And you really think that's cool. And he, he would never tell you anything that you don't like. But here's the problem. That's not the real Jesus. It just isn't. The real Jesus, you will not just like him like a buddy. You will either loathe him and hate him. You will leave him and run away from him. Or you will love him and worship him. That's the real Jesus. And so you say, well, I'm just a, I'm just a red letter. I believe in Jesus. And, and so I'm not going to take what Paul says. Let me help you with this a little bit this morning, if I can. Um, John chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus is about to step off the planet. And look what he says to his disciples. He says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And what Jesus is saying here is, look it, you red-letter people, I'm leaving. My spirit is coming. And when he comes, he's going to remind my apostles of what I said, so my words and my work will go on. Listen to me. Jesus Christ, as he walked this planet, had the utmost respect for the word of God. He believed it to be literal, the scriptures, literal, true, and authoritative. Read the, read the Gospels. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Scriptures. And now he says to his disciples, listen, I'm leaving. The Spirit of God is coming, and he's going to allow you to remember what I've told you so that you can continue to record my words. Now watch how this unfolds in the New Testament. Okay? First Timothy, chapter 5, verse 18. This is a fascinating portion of Scripture. For the Scripture saith, Paul speaking, Here's what the scripture says. It's authoritative. We, we, we believe it to be true and literal and we follow it. For the scripture says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Do you know where that scripture is found? Let me help you. It's found in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 25. That's a direct quote. The scripture, and every Jew would have understood that. And then he says this. And the laborer is worthy of his reward. Can I tell you something? That is not in the Old Testament. You know where that's found? The book of Luke, chapter 10. And what Paul is saying is, already at this time in the early church, they recognized that the writings of Luke, a companion of the apostles, was considered scripture. 
You say, well, there's Paul again. I told you I'm not listening to Paul. I wouldn't even hang out with Paul. Paul is such a fanatic. Paul is so intense. And I agree. I don't think I'd like to hang out with Paul. I would like to hang out with Peter. I think Peter's cool. I think Peter blows it and he falls and he stumbles and we relate to Peter. So let's find out what Peter says, shall we? 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse number 15, and count that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. What a great, we could stop there, and I, I wish I could stop there. That God is patient and long-suffering for your salvation. That he died for you. It's a beautiful truth, and I, it's the gospel, and I love the gospel. And, it's, and, Paul, and Peter says, man, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, same Paul of 1 Corinthians, uh, even as the beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given him, hath written unto you. So Peter says, hey, this is what the Bible says, this is what we believe, just like Paul wrote unto you. Now look at verse number 16. Also in all of his epistles. And so already at this time in the church, there was a collection of Paul's writings. They knew about it. Peter read them. And look what he says about Paul's writings. In which are some things hard to be understood. It's not the truth about Paul. Like, Paul, I don't know what you're talking about sometimes. Hey, you're in good company. Either did Peter. You're like, Paul, what are you talking about? That's really hard. What are you saying? Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist. Paul's saying some things. They don't like it. They twist it. And watch this next phrase. As they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. Interesting. Peter says, Paul's words... Our scripture. So listen to me. You red letter edition people, let me help you this morning. God's word is Genesis to Revelation. It's all the words of Christ. And you can't step away from it. And so you got to be careful with this. This is the truth. And so you can't take Christ out of the equation. When it comes to submission, when it comes to the scripture, here's the third letter, letter C. Letter C is... Um, creation. Creation. Um, this is a really good argument. People say, wait a minute, Paul's writing to the first century, and, and it's a patriarchal kind of society. You know, Dad's in charge, and he's the priest of the house, and he runs things, and, and it's so antiquated. We can just throw this out because Paul is speaking to the first century. So forget about it. And that's really a great argument. It really is. It's an argument that has a lot of weight, except for the fact that Paul brings this topic up again in 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 2. And what he says there is, he says the same command about the order of the church, and he takes it back down to the creative order. He takes it back to Adam and Eve. He's not just talking about something for the first century. He's talking about a creative order. So we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and what do we find in the creative order? God, in the beginning, created man and woman, created he them in the image of God. So he says, listen, God created humanity, he created men, he created women. And they are equal. They are equal in value, in worth, in person, in dignity. They are created after the image of God. That's a powerful point. What does that mean? That means every individual in this room and every individual we see, they are a walking representation of the image of God. That's why we respect all life. All life is created in the image of God. Unborn life. Baby life, old life, handicapped life, 
not too smart people life. Okay? All of it. And when you see an individual, what you're looking at is someone created in the image of God. There is dignity. And in the creative order, God says, I made men, I made a man, I made a woman. They're equal in value and worth. They have dignity. They have dignity. They're created in God's image. So when you see people, they're, they're created in his image. And we respect that. We respect that. They're created in his image. Along with that, that's why we are complete. Some of you folks, you think, well, I need a man to make me complete. No, you don't. I need a woman to make me complete. No, you don't. I need marriage to make me complete. No, you don't. Two of the greatest Christians who ever lived, Paul and Jesus, single. Honestly. I need children to make me complete. No, you don't. In Christ, we're complete in him. And so we see the dignity of humanity. Men and women created equal value worth. But, listen to me now, they are, it's going to blow your mind, they are different. I know some of you are hearing this for the first time. All right, take a deep breath. Men and women are different. Okay? And if you don't believe me, Time Magazine in 1992, front page said, why are men and women different? And then the next caption on the front page was, new study says they're born that way. <laughs> it's amazing. It took us, you know, thousands of years in Time Magazine to tell us they're different. And you know, if you're ever around the opposite sex, you know they're different. I, on the phone the other day, I'm talking, and my wife is there, and she's asking me to ask a question while I'm on the phone. And it's like, I can't do that. I, I am talking now. I can't concentrate on more than one thing at a time. You've got to be quiet. I'm not even, if I'm listening to you, I'm not listening to him. So please, stop. And yet, I know for a fact, often, she's been on the phone, she's been cooking dinner, she's been doing something else, she's been raising the kids, and I ask her a question, and she answers all of those things, okay? It's an amazing thing. We are different. And listen to me, that difference is a beautiful thing. It shows beauty and complementation. It's fantastic. And whether you're married or not, the interaction with the opposite sex and worthy men and worthy women in our life, it's a good thing. It's a God thing. We are different. And our culture keeps trying to tell us that we're not. And our culture is insane. It's insane. We're different. And we have different roles. A woman does not have to do what a man does or vice versa to have value or worth. They don't. And, and if you, you're here this morning and say, oh, yeah, what are you saying? That women can't um, proclaim truth in the church. And that's not what I'm saying. We know already women do proclaim truth in lots of different areas and to different men. But in the order that God has given, what he's saying is the pastor or the elder is supposed to be a male. That's it. That's it. You say, well, I don't think that's right. Why, can't, why do I only have to, to, to preach to women? And I would say if that's your attitude, then you have a problem with the value and worth of women, and I don't. Because what you're saying is unless you get to, to speak truth to a man in an assembly, then women don't mean anything. And I would say to you, anytime you speak truth, whether in a congregation, to a man, to a woman, to a child, in junior church, at the nursing home, at the city mission, on the street, it's of importance and value. 
And the last thing on this, I'll give you on the creative order thing. Uh, I'll go to the next C, is control. Is control. Fourth one here, control. And, and here's our biggest problem. In our world, we believe that when we talk about leadership, it means control and power. Whoever the leader is, that's the guy, that's the girl, that they're in complete control and power. They dominate over people. We have to work slavishly for them. Whatever their whim is, that's what we do. And that's what our world thinks. And so we talk about leadership and say, ah, we just want to rule somebody. Listen to me. The Bible never, ever, ever gives any justification to abuse a woman, a man, a child, anyone in leadership. And the biblical idea of leadership is so radical and so countercultural, the world can't even grasp it. Listen to Matthew chapter 20, verse number 25. This is leadership now. This is what it means. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, which means your servant. He goes on to say that, verse 27. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Listen to me. When the church talks about leadership, it is not power and control. It is never power and control, ever. It is servant leadership. It's the leadership of Jesus who wasn't about control. He was consumed giving his life for others. You know what leadership looks like in the biblical light? And I'm talking in government. I'm talking in the church. I'm talking in the home. I'm talking at work. If you're in a position of leadership, what it means is that you should be the biggest servant there. Don't hear that at the seminars, do you? But God says. And if we would be serious about the word of God and be fanatical in this area, that I will pour out my life for those underneath me, that as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, I would let my life be consumed for the good of my family and my people. i got to tell you, I think that's pretty good leadership. And that's biblical. And so I hope that helps this morning in this topic. I get it. I understand. We say things sometimes and they're shocking. But the truth is, I'd rather stand on the word of God than my whims. Because I can change all the time. And our culture is changing all the time. And we have truth. You say, Rick, okay, that's great. But I don't think Paul understood how difficult this topic would be. I mean, he's talking to the Corinthians in the first century. We're today now in the 21st century in Chatham. There's just no way he could have understood how this would hit us. It would be easier for them. Let me remind you, this was not easy for them. He is writing to correct them. They're screwing up church. And this would have been countercultural for them as well. And now Paul is going to tell us, now as this chapter ends, expecting pushback on this, how we can respond. And I'm telling you something this morning. This is not just a response to what we just heard now in 1 Corinthians 30, 14, 34, and 35. It is, but there's more. This is a pushback always from all truth. When we are doing something wrong and we're confronted about that, or, or better yet, let me use this example. 
If your kid is ever doing something wrong, which I know for some of you that's impossible, all right? Your kid is ever, if someone says, hey, listen, your kid, your Johnny, your Susie, they were terrible. Right? Almost always our first response to that is wrong. It's I defend, I excuse, or I blame. Now let me help you this morning. When someone t- comes and tells you your kid is bad, here's the truth. Your kid is bad. All of your kids are bad. Go ask Mr. Manning after the service. They're, they're all bad. Your kids are bad. My kids are bad. Especially David. They're bad. And can I tell you something else? We're all bad. What's the arrogant? We're, we're all bad. And if we're wise, even with the initial, oh, I hate that. If we're wise, we respond the right way. Now, look what Paul says about the different responses to truth here this morning. And I'll quickly give you the three we find here. Back in our text in 1 Corinthians 14, he says now in verse number 36, after this confrontation with them, expecting now some pushback, he says, what? Came the word of God out of you, from you or came it unto you only? If a man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And so Paul says the first response is that of conceit. Here were people in the church who already said, I don't care what Paul says. Apollos speaks better. We have a Bible. We have the Word of God. Who does Paul think he is? It's the equivalent of saying what Rob Bell said. Why should we listen to Letters that are 2,000 years old, they're conceited. And the truth is, if that's your response when you're confronted with truth, you're unreachable, man. And Paul says, there's no help for you unless you acknowledge what I'm telling you is true from the Word of God. I'm not telling you how I feel or what I think. I'm telling you the Scripture. And if you don't acknowledge that, you will remain unreachable. You're conceited, conceited. We trust, I, I think this morning, if you name the name of Christ, you are trusting this for your eternal salvation. And yet, you will not trust it when God says how to order the church or order your life or order your work or order your family. Paul says, hey, you're conceited. Listen, you will not get help until you acknowledge what, that, what I'm saying to you is the word of God. Don't be unreachable. But for many of us this morning, we're unreachable. You've got to come in contact with the Word of God. This is what the Bible says. I do not care what you think. I don't. Like me, love me, hate me, hate me, join the club. We've got a long list. We're giving away jackets. Whatever, okay? It's okay. I don't care. We have to proclaim the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And so, and I'm not talking about... If the Word of God says it, we ought to follow it. You and I are not smarter than God, and we think we are. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows how you were created. He knows what you were created for. And so the first group are those that are conceited. They are unreachable. Here's a second crowd, and this is really interesting to me. The next verse, he says, um, verse number 38, But if a man be ignorant, this one is confident. I, I don't... I'm not wrong. I'm never wrong. 
If I was wrong, don't confuse me with the facts. I want to stay the way I am. Just leave me alone. I am okay. Don't want truth. I've got all the answers. He's confident. And Paul says about this one, he says, you're unteachable. He says, if you want to be ignorant, there's no remedy for this, he says. Stay ignorant. Stay ignorant. That's all you've got to do. Just... Paul says, I don't have time for you. If you believe that you've got all the answers, stay ignorant and continue to make a mess of your church, make a mess of your life, make a mess of all of your relationships because you have all the answers. Paul says, stay ignorant. You better be careful. Some of us are really good when we're confronted with truth about taking the spotlight off of the fact that we were just exposed and putting it on someone else. So now the spotlight's on them. And now the truth of my own sin is never seen. Really cool trick. The problem is you're still ignorant. And Paul says, leave him be. There's an old quote that I love from Les Olala. He says, reach the reachable, teach the teachable, and leave the rest alone. Paul says, stay ignorant. And then here's the third category. He goes on from verse 38, verse number 39. He says, wherefore, for all of this now, brethren, sisters, listen, covet to prophesy, covet to speak truth to one another, um, forbid not to speak with tongues. It's not a problem. If they're doing it right, if it's the language, God's given it, they're still early in the church life, don't do that. And let all things be done decently and in order. And this third group are those who are compliant. Yeah, that's what the word of God says. I'm not quite there yet, but if it says it, I believe I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I see the truth. I, instead of taking the truth and making it fit into my life, I'm going to conform myself to the truth of God's word. I'm going to comply to it and let everything be done decently and in order. Can I tell you something? When we look at the word of God and see it for what it is and follow it, it's not as if our, our, our lives then are a bed of roses and everything's fine and smooth sailing and you know, we'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's a lie. But when we follow God's way, we come back in line on how he made us and created us, and there's always human flourishing. There's always good. There's always change. There's always redemption. There's always new mercies day by day. And so we're confronted with truth this morning. Not only was Paul saying about the church, but in our everyday lives. And you will decide this morning whether you will be conceited and unreachable until you exposed by the truth, or confident and unteachable, and you will stay ignorant, or we will be compliant and say, God, here's your word. My life will line up with it. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to say something. I'm going to quit. I promise. I want to get here so I'll feel better at least about myself that we got here. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to close with this thought. We'll pick it up next week. Moreover, and, and it's interesting, Paul says, after all of this that he said to a church that was immature, a church that was worldly, a church that was messed up, he tries to correct them now. He says, moreover, before I'm done with you, let me remind you, you've got to get this point. Let me make this one thing clear. And this is helpful for us, I hope. Moreover, brethren, they're talking to all the messes of our life, all the struggles we face, all the problems we have, 
all the conflicts that we come into with the word of God in our own life. He says, don't miss this. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, the gospel that I preach that you've received and wherein you stand. And so listen to me. As we close this morning, it's amazing that Paul says to a church that is messed up, a church he's trying to correct, a church that's got all kinds of issues, listen, don't lose sight of what is of the utmost importance. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That God would love the sinner. That he would send his son to die in our place. That on Calvary, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ's head for us. He was a propitiation. He took the wrath of God and he stepped into my place. And because of that, when I repent and believe, I go free. I am cleansed. I am redeemed. I am bought back. I'm a child of the king. And Paul says, no matter what's happening in your life or what's happening in the church, moreover, don't miss this point. It's all about the gospel. It's the gospel. You have been saved. You were saved. You're being saved. You will be saved. You stand in this gospel. And so this morning, as we prepare to leave this place, if you know the gospel, glory in it this morning. It changes everything. It changes everything. And if you don't understand the gospel this morning, that's the first step. Nothing else makes sense until you get this right, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and then rose again. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.